0: Hi, this is Isaac Arthur, welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. When we look up into the night skies, all we see is absence and silence, but could our galaxy be a dark forest full of hidden predators waiting to consume us? So welcome back to another Sci-Fi Sunday here on SFIA, where we take concepts in science fiction and examine them in light of known and theoretical science. Today we'll be examining the notion of a mostly silent and hostile galaxy as we see in many science fiction walks, from H.P. Lovecraft's cosmic horror walks, featuring old monsters like Cthulhu preying on the galaxy, to modern takes on the work like Alastair Reynolds' Revelation Space series and Six and Lou's trilogy The Remembrance of Earth's Past, whose second novel, The Dark Forest, popularized one of the Fermi Paradox solutions we'll be discussing today, though it's worth noting the specific Fermi Paradox solution in question was discussed at least as early as 1983 by another excellent sci-fi author, David Brin. Now we will be discussing a few variants of quiet and hostile galaxies today, including the Berserker Hypothesis, named for another great sci-fi series by Fred Saberhagen, and this is hardly our first look at the Fermi Paradox. Indeed, we did a short episode on the Dark Forest and its use of game theory four years back, when I first started doing the occasional bonus episode, Beyond Our Normal Thursday episodes, which quickly evolved into our mid-month sci-fi Sunday and back then, bonus episodes were about half the normal length, so I always felt that episode rushed the topic and focused too much on the math, and so was glad the audience asked for a follow-up on the topic. Now, the Fermi Paradox is the big question of why, in such an enormous and ancient universe, we don't seem to see any alien civilizations, and discussions of reasons why come in so many varieties that for most of the show's history, our two longest episodes, each over an hour long, were given over to single summaries of the more popular solutions. Indeed, since the most recent of the pair was done in 2016, it's probably past time for an update for that too, and it probably will need to be longer. It's a giant topic, and one with no clear answers, but generally the main discussions break into contemplating loud versus quiet aliens. We did a deeper dive on the notion of loud, grabby aliens in that episode late last year, and today's topic is more about the Quiet Aliens variety. As a reminder, loud aliens are distinguished by possessing three characteristics, they expand into a galaxy fast, they last a long time, and they make visible changes to those areas they reach. They may or may not expand beyond their own galaxy or skip primitive planets, but the key characteristics that distinguish them from other types of civilizations is that they essentially leave a very detectable presence, by being big, visible, and long-lasting. We call that loud, since the usual context for discussions in the 1970s and 80s, when most of this was first getting seriously discussed, revolved around listening for radio communications and signals. Glaringly obvious aliens is perhaps a more appropriate term, and they are the low-hanging fruit of the Fermi Paradox, and their apparent absence is one of the main reasons for the Fermi Paradox. By default, that's what we think we should expect to see in a universe as old and as large as this one, ancient, giant, and very visible civilizations, because it's what we want to do, go out and explore and colonize new worlds and put up big beacons and billboards advertising them for visits and immigration, and just keep on doing that in an ever-expanding wave until the stars themselves burn out. If anybody like that exists, probability indicates they had to have started at least several tens or even hundreds of millions of light years away from us, and started recently enough that we still would not have seen the signals and light from them. And this version of the Loud Aliens model, which takes on the name Grabby Aliens, assumes we would count as the newest example of that, just getting ready to expand out, and tends to put an upper limit on how many civilizations are in our universe currently as several thousand, which sounds like a lot. But still means you would not expect to have even a single one in this galaxy with us. And indeed, that you would have to search several thousand galaxies to have a decent shot at finding the homeworld of such a civilization. Though, of course, it works on the notion that the speed of light is a limit on travel and communication, and that generally means no unified galaxy sized civilizations, let alone sprawling multi galactic ones. Just an endless sea of local civilizations arisen from a shared homeworld but divergent and locally focused, and that's something to keep in mind for today as we discuss quiet and hostile aliens. We don't really think there can be unification on policies or enforcement of them unless such a policy is essentially a mathematical certainty everybody converges on, no matter how different an outlook they are. Which is why options like Dark Force Theory rely on math such as Game Theory for their functioning. Now, loud aliens are defined by being fast expanders, relative to the age of the galaxy anyway, where fast might mean took millions of years to crawl across the galaxy, and the same relative notions apply to being long-lasting, because a civilization that blows itself up in a few thousand years of technology might seem stable to us, but would be a brief bright flash on the galactic stage, a hiccup civilization, to keep to the loud and quiet analogy. Pickup civilizations are only briefly and dimly visible, so can exist without us seeing them, but only to a certain density, loudness, or duration. If they pop up too often or loudly or longly, we'd spot some. A civilization which is neither of these, expanding not at all or ultra-slow, or enduring but a brief time, is a quiet alien, as would be one that left little evidence they existed, Any one of those three traits being missing, fast expanders, long lasters, galaxy changes and you get a quiet civilization. The default solution to the Furry Paradox throughout most of the 50s and 60s was that since there weren't any loud aliens around, that either we were somehow blind to them or in denial to their existence, or that they were the quiet type and usually this was attributed to those first two options, expansion and durability. The paradox is named for Enrico Fermi who helped design nuclear weapons and who died before the space race, and took the reasonable view at the time that space travel to colonize other worlds was probably not realistic, and that civilizations probably blew themselves up eventually and thus were hard to hear from. Again, just a quick hiccup or nothing at all. Which is a pretty decent answer but seemed less convincing as time went on and we hadn't blown ourselves up or even developed that capacity, To my knowledge, no nation has ever obtained or even seriously sought sufficient atomic weapon stockpiles to pose a real threat to human survival, just the current civilization which might take a couple centuries to restore itself after a full-scale war if it happened. And with good reason, it's of no real strategic value and it is insanely expensive to maintain that level of weaponry. Atomic stockpiles were mostly about ensuring that if your enemy attacked first and had some unknown but plausible advantage, like their submarines or bombers were sneakier than you thought, you would still have enough weaponry to deploy yourself to hurt them too badly to effectively launch an offensive war against you. This is part of why folks often refer to nuclear weapons as defensive, and the other piece of that equation that often gets left out, and will also matter for today, that it is not a them versus us situation with no other players. If the war really was NATO versus the Warsaw Pact, and those had truly represented totally loyal and willing participants, then maybe invading your enemy by dragging your battered body over there to finish the job might work. But most of the planet was not in either Alliance, and neither Alliance was without its share of internal feuds and suspicions about their allies, their own internal rivalries, or their neutral neighbors. This is a critical point to remember when contemplating scenarios involving alien civilizations or what a race of robots that we made might do in relation to us, because it is not plausible, especially with aliens, that you would have a simple scenario of us versus them and no one else involved or aware. So with the apparent absence of loud aliens, we see thoughts shift to various versions of quiet aliens, ones who either do not expand, or do not expand much, or don't last long if they do, or both, and that short duration might be something like ascending to another plane of existence voluntarily rather than just blowing each other straight to hell. We tend to assume the ability to colonize space eliminates the short duration issue, as you don't have all your eggs in one basket, so some are bound to survive and thrive and lay more eggs, However, we also have the notion of the Von Neumann Probe or Von Neumann Chicken, as a response to the idea that sending manned ships on colony missions that might take centuries only to arrive at lifeless worlds might stop colonization. The Von Neumann Probe is a robot that arrives in a destination solar system, scans around it while latching onto some asteroid or moon, and extracting resources from it to build facilities in that system and copies of itself to go on to other systems. This became a popular notion as we sent folks to the moon but only briefly and we turned to robot missions for decades after. This is the Hart-Tipler conjecture of the Fermi Paradox, that you can rely on self-replicating robots to do your exploring and maybe your colonizing too, at least laying the groundwork, but if the robots can come out then you can have them send tight beam signals home and just litter the galaxy with them, sending out new waves if need be, to replenish those which might be failing to replicate or report over time, or failing in some other way. The absence of any of these von Neumann probes, says the Hart-Tippler conjecture, strongly contraindicated any civilization having existed in this galaxy before us. This is what makes objects like Amuamua especially interesting, this being the interstellar asteroids some speculated might be an alien probe, or a damaged one, that passed by our inner system some years back. Which takes us to the Berserker Hypothesis, the dark version of the von Neumann probe, where someone has intentionally or accidentally unleashed probes on the galaxy that attack other spaceships or even other primitive planets. Personally, I like the notion of someone having sent a second wave of probes out with updates and patches, with orders to remove or place any probes they encountered lacking those new directives like the importance of leaving any planet alone with signs of life and just attacking other probes lacking the right directives or IFF beacon, thus getting you the result of endless mutant waves of probes attacking each other with some occasionally attacking primitive planets or less primitive ones where they've got basic space travel and probes of their own lacking the right beacons or IFF. Now as I mentioned at the beginning, the Berserker Hypothesis draws its name from the Berserker Space Opera series, featuring ancient doomsday weapons left over from some interstellar war between two apparently extinct alien races, whose monstrous asteroid-sized killing machines survive them, wiping out one side then turning on the other, and devastating the galaxy until modern times, where humanity, called the Solarians, fight back against them, Or sometimes collaborate with them in order to save their own necks. It's a great series that ran from the mid 60s all the way to Saberhagen's death in 2007, and explores a lot of the now well known tropes of robot on human warfare, and it's a great bit of vintage sci fi. In terms of the Fermi Paradox itself, though, it became the blanket term for solutions involving von Neumann probes mulching the galaxy. And for whatever reason, humanity has been left alone, but not for much longer. We will get our answer to the Fermi Paradox when we find out it's our turn to join the long list of victims of such probes since they were first made. To quote David Brin's 1983 paper The Great Silence, there is no need to struggle to suppress the elements of the Drake Equation in order to explain the Great Silence, nor need we suggest that no intelligent aliens anywhere would bear the cost of interstellar travel. It need only happen once for the results of this scenario to become the equilibrium conditions in the galaxy. We could not have detected extraterrestrial radio traffic, nor would any intelligent aliens have ever settled on Earth, because all were killed shortly after discovering radio. And there are definitely elements of that at work in many great space operas thereafter, like the wolves or inhibitors from Alistair Reynolds' Revelation Space, but to work as a solution it has to overcome some problems. First, you do need someone to have been stupid enough to do it in the first place, and while we can all roll our eyes and chuckle at how plausible that is, I think that might be exaggerated. I don't know anyone who works in artificial intelligence that doesn't speak of it as intrinsically dangerous if not used cautiously, and doesn't know all the tropes from science fiction about it getting out of hand so we shouldn't just take as a given that someone is going to be smart enough to make AI and yet stupidly and blindly miss some red flag and that there's no way for others to catch it or react. Second, a moment ago I suggested they might have oopsed by sending probes out to eliminate flawed and obsolete ones, and that's basically to leave the door open to lots of different strains of what's essentially a galactic virus and thus explain why they generally didn't attack primitive planets. That matters for two reasons one being that you hardly need to wait for radio signals to find life. Earth should have been easily identifiable as life-bearing for billions of years now to anyone in this galaxy, and improvements in astronomical capabilities to find exoplanets has seriously damaged the concept that aliens are lurking in space waiting for signs of life in the form of radio signals. The other half of that is if none of these probes attack primitive wards or even technological ones, just space-born items, then eventually folks could walk to clear the problem up and probably broadcast loudly to exchange options, or battle plans, for removing these probes from space, including their own counter-probe IFFs so other aliens knew not to attack those ones. As we move to discussing the Dark Force Theory, it's good to have a reminder that cooperation is often advantageous and that secrecy is implausible. Anybody who was making a concerted effort to wipe out all primitive alien life in the galaxy could have done so simply by being the first on the scene, willing to do it. Because while alien life might not have universal signs of its presence on planets, it is unlikely there would be countless unpredictable signs of life wards would exhibit. You kill every world with high oxygen content in its atmosphere until you encounter other anomalies, like unnatural methane content, and then you probe that, see it indicates life, and add that to the extermination script. This doesn't even require that the species doing it be prone to colonizing places themselves. Indeed, one reason a species might be considered quiet aliens is that they don't want to surround their homeworld with tons of space colonies because they figure they'd just be producing tons of dirty mutants on the border in possession of advanced weapons. So they just launch the bazookas out there, and with open orders from the get-go to send detailed photos and scans back of every planet they see. Followed shortly by endless waves of planet wreckers, probably relativistic kill missiles. See the megastructural Compendium for details. It is possible over time they would die off or ascend the orders, or that they did have a big internal space civil war with their colonies, and the winners countermand the orders in whole or part, or the berserkers get conflicting orders, and so on. Galactic timescales and distances leave lots of room for confusion and chaos. And that includes the possibility that they eventually fell apart and we don't see any probes or berserkers around because that mission ended a billion years ago and life is just re-emerging on the galactic scene from the inferno of that time. Or the supercluster scene, we could be in a pocket of the Universe where somebody released those doomsday devices billions of years before Earth ever arose, and distant observers would to our region as the equivalent of some bombed-out apocalyptic wasteland only a madman or fool would seek to signal, let alone colonize. Note that all of these cases still involve leaving a big footprint on the galactic scene, which was our third qualifier for being a loud alien expands fast, lasts long, and changes its environment, which is true whether you're terraforming a barren planet with plants and blue skies and clouds, or planting mushroom clouds on peaceful, primitive, paradise planets. The idea that you might get out into the universe, fast to move and long to last, and yet not leave a trace, tends to come up only in the context of hiding, and this is where we get the Dark force Theory, Again, today we're going to avoid a deep discussion of the game theory math usually attached to the idea, see our episode from 4 years back if you want that, but the notion is that the galaxy, and the Universe in general, is not some cheerful place where we're going to meet aliens and sometimes be friends, and sometimes enemies, but eventually friends, and give each other hugs and maybe even intermarry somehow. Rather, it's a lot of civilizations that are mostly afraid that contact with other civilizations is going to bring their downfall and inevitably concludes that their only path to survival is to keep quiet, and maybe kill anyone else they see, or even trick them into making a noise so others descend on them, like some sacrifice to the Dark Gods. The reasoning here is not bad on First inspection it cuts against the grain of most of us raised in modern times and on classic sci-fi, but the odds don't seem to favor us benefiting from contact with aliens, except in some kind of vague existential way. If you are patient and cautious, you'll figure out science and technology just fine on your own, and while alien contact might expedite that and also introduce you to countless new types of art, that only happens if they don't kill you and also choose to share, If they don't share, then it's better to survive and just keep coming up with new art and experiences on your own world. Additional colonies really just make for additional ways to accidentally expose yourself, and the assumption is that you would never be able to successfully make yourself safe by open and large defense. Others would get you before you got big and powerful enough. For my part, I find that last part debatable at least. The game theory aspect essentially boils down to assume you have nobody able or willing to talk, and need to make decisions in isolation and an incomplete knowledge of the galaxy and other species in it, and each having three options 1. Take no action. 2. Inform others of your existence in some fashion. 3. Destroy any civilization known to you. And then, in a the galaxy of many civilizations, some new ones arise each round while others remain in play from prior rounds, and the decision keeps coming up. It is assumed you are making efforts to watch for those around you and to improve your own technology and resources where you're feeling able and safe. So Millennia 1, don't act, alert other, or kill anyone you detect. Millennia 2, if you're alive, act again, Millennia 3, and so on, out to billions of years or rounds. And the reasoning here is fine enough if you only have those three options and those circumstances. Staying quiet and killing anyone who does stick their head up does work on paper and in that math. Game theory is an amazing tool that also gets misused a lot, because it's mostly about actions you should take when you have a very clear set of limited choices and no real ability to negotiate or discuss options with someone else, hence the prisoner's dilemma where two criminals are given the option of ratting each other out, and both choose to do so rather than keep quiet, when toward in isolation from each other, That they will get a couple years of prison if they both stay quiet, presumably on some lesser charge, but no prison time if they admit to the crime and finger the other perp. It's a good example of explaining the math, but since it is necessarily simple as a learning tool and involves criminals, I tend to feel it encourages folks to think of game theory as sociopathic and binary. It is not, it's just the simple example being used to illustrate limited choices that have to be made with no intel on the other actors. Or a chance to discuss it with them, and that is reasonable enough at first glance when viewing the galaxy as a dark forest full of unknowns. The problem is, it is no such thing. It is a very brightly lit place where stealth is incredibly hard and nobody would ever believe that they lived in a galaxy of ancient genocidal predators and just got lucky and missed by them. We didn't. Earth has shown astronomically visible telltales of life far longer than we've had fire and technology. And our civilization was obvious as a technological one from orbit for a lot longer than it takes for a message to leave a probe left to watch us and get back to some base or planet a thousand light years away where someone is making a judgment call on whether or not to whack us. Trust me, we didn't hide from anyone, let alone some determined watcher stalking the galaxy to mortar our rivals. And nobody else would really expect that either. And nobody else would expect that either they would be asking how they could murder the galaxy and make sure they missed no vengeful survivors, and they would have the same math and science we have, or presumably better, making it even easier to spot exoplanets with signs of life and send a probe of theirs for a flyby, or a protracted observation period, or to shove a big asteroid off course into that planet. And the notion that they'd be afraid of being spotted doing that and be seen by others doesn't work. Because it's assuming you can't hide some system of tight-beamed relays with orders to self-destructive capture or damage, but that you could have somehow hidden your entire civilization and also backwards in time to before you had such technology, or to when your primitive ancestors crawled out of the seas. Again, it kind of changes our parameters here when we include those options. It also takes a huge jump in logic to assume everybody is going to do this, even if it turned out to mathematically make sense which again, it does not. Our math example had three options, do nothing, alert others to your presence, or wipe out someone you found, and it is assuming you can not only wipe out a civilization that speaks up, but believe you can from the moment you pick this strategy, with 100% confidence, in addition to assuming you think you could successfully hide and not have been seen before that. Neither of those seems plausible, and yet if either fails, the math does too. Now, if folks ignored it anyway in colonized space, then someone might come by and kill them, but if everyone is trying to lie low, it is a big leap to assuming that anyone is going to be willing and able to roll up to some emerging interstellar empire and take them down. On the one hand, we tend to assume some secret of alien race that had been lying low for millions of years would have weapons that could crack reality open, But that's a big assumption considering how fast that science and technology have been rolling out for us thus far, and they've gone and taken a thousand star systems and have emerging Dyson Swarms around them, by the time you get in a lure at a thousand light years away and can send a reaction, you'd have to be worrying that you just took a pot shot at a giant who's going to walk on over and clobber you now. It's not that there aren't some scenarios where everyone agrees to remain fairly quiet and not expand much, We usually call that the self-quarantine hypothesis, and it operates on the notion that nothing good comes from anything but the most basic and distant diplomatic exchanges, and that because of growth rates and time lag issues, you almost have to attack at the first sign of massive and rapid expansion. After all, the human population quadrupled in just one century, and we are not particularly fertile as critters go. In galactic terms, some civilization could go from our size of a bit under 10 billion to a multi-solar empire of Dyson swarms numbering quintillions in little more than the time it would take to get colony ships there. A few thousand years isn't much time for a galactic reaction in a no-FTL universe, let alone a diplomatic exchange, So in a scenario like that, your best bet is to tell everyone that any expansion beyond their home solar system, or maybe the nearest thousand stars, is forbidden and the punishment is immediate attack. This process works far better if you actually do tell people before they get underway. Which means you all put up big beacons telling everyone who you are, what your borders are, and what the policy and reasoning is. This by definition though makes you loud aliens, the kind primitive civilizations with early radio astronomy and basic space travel, like us, cannot possibly miss. The problem there, as with the others, is that it is assuming universal policies in an environment that doesn't encourage or permit lots of discussion. Now, Dark Forest itself does not require discussion, but it also only makes sense if the various civilizations motoring each other follow a fairly limited selection of possible moves, which again is great in game theory, especially this sort of simple case, but reality doesn't put those limits on them. Let's say I'm trying to sell this strategy to Congress or Parliament, we'll call them the Steering Committee. What is the first question? How do we know anyone out there is hostile? Well, the response is that we do not, but we need to assume that and the follow-up is, for how long? We're new to space, so cautious four steps make sense, but caution is not the same as agreeing to an eternal policy of waiting in terror for real data, and I think most folks who would qualify as ambitious and competitive, which tends to describe a lot of leaders, would inherently abhor this approach not all species might act the same, that's what we call non-exclusivity, that certain behaviors cannot be assumed to be universal amongst space-capable civilizations. We can assume math and rocket science are pretty universal to space-capable civilizations, and probably game theory too as a result, even though its invention comes after experiments with rockets and might not be required or super obvious. Nonetheless, whether or not a civilization likes baseball or hot chocolate really should have no bearing on their ability to get spaceflight, one might argue their access to coffee does, but by and large it's hard to make the case any given behavior is exclusive with spaceflight unless it's critical to inventing and improving spaceflight. Some folks do make the case that since you almost have to have nuclear technology and the bomb, a certain capacity for coexistence and peace with others is required, but I would merely say that was more probable rather than exclusive. Same, I would tend to say a knack for controlled ambition and cooperation strongly helps a civilization get into space, but it's a real stretch to assume that's all you would encounter, versus something like a hive mind or any number of other scenarios we cannot think of but that would still result in expansionist behavior or a strong urge to it. Going back to our steering committee, what is question three? Maybe, how do we avoid being detected by others? And at this point someone will say, I'm sorry, it's too late for that, we were probably detected millions of years ago by our nearest neighbors. You could propose that all effort must be turned toward building an ark ship or doomsday bunker on Mars, from which a hidden remnant of humanity could stow away, and this might even get approved as a backup plan even though it's assuming the aliens are too stupid to assume we might try this if we had the resources and technology for an Ark ship. It's still a tactic worth trying, just not one likely to have our generals saying, yes, that will save us for sure. More likely though, some will say, oh good, if they've known about us for millions of years, they probably aren't particularly hostile, they may even like us. I think we could argue that's wrong too, that them knowing of us and doing nothing, obviously benevolent or malevolent, tends to imply either they do not actually exist, that no civilizations in this galaxy arose till we did, or that they are form followers of some Star Trek-like prime directive. See that episode for more discussion of that option, and the many problems with it. But the scientists then follow up by saying no, they must see us dead for their own protection, it's mathematically required, I think that's going to get a lot of skepticism, and frankly I don't think it would matter how firmly they could prove that. You're essentially arguing the best answer to having neighbors here on Earth is to nuke them before they decide to nuke you. There's a finite chance Luxembourg might one day decide to build a doomsday device and use it, so we must blow them up first. Math says so. As we mentioned earlier in our discussion of nukes and the Cold War, that sort of logic has its own flaws, but really only applies to cases where it's you and us and no interested third parties. In all case, if we're assuming the response of aliens to detecting other civilizations is to immediately attack, which incidentally isn't a super subtle way to operate if you're trying to hide, we probably want to ask how they came to the determination that acting hostile to the point of unprovoked genocide was a safe move. Inside a galaxy they already believe has older civilizations lurking around who for whatever reason did not already kill them. Again, we can't just ignore that logical flaw of assuming everyone didn't know you existed till you sent out radio signals. I think you'd want to be very certain you were safe before launching a mortar strike on neighbors, and keep in mind this capability is assuming it is possible to launch such efforts, which implies it was possible to launch colony ships, but which also implies it was possible to launch probes. Your interstellar probes don't have to be a big giveaway, you exist. They can be built, at some cost of efficiency and speed, to change their direction or to zig or zag to target star systems, so that anyone picking it up wouldn't be able to tell where it came from originally. It could then send a very narrow and weak laser signal back not to home, but to some discrete relay, indeed you might send a cluster of a dozen probes out that would all explode from such a relay at different angles to explore various systems. Your relay could just be set to explode after those flybys are complete and the signal sent back to it at light speed long before anyone could see them and fly out to pick it up. They know someone made a probe but really have no idea who or from where and even it might be one of their own colonies if they have them. So maybe you are quiet for a while, but after you've explored a million systems, which you might have done within a few thousand years of landing on the moon, and found nothing, what's to stop you exploding out into the galaxy? Then the next question, what stopped them from exploding out in the galaxy and why shouldn't we now? Also, since our probes worked, shouldn't we take for granted other civilizations built them too and deployed them and drew these same conclusions? And so on, And that's fundamentally the other big flaw of dark force theory of the Foamy paradox. It's assuming static behavior over huge swaths of space and time with changing actors. At a core level, it's meant to explain the apparent silence, and doesn't really give good reasons why anyone would remain indefinitely silent, particularly given that any real attempt at stealthy an entire civilization is bound to inhibit their ability to grow in strength, which should be the default evolutionary objective. And which, unsurprisingly, is also a very good survival strategy. Not every critter follows the path of being big and menacing, certainly, but it would seem a fairly common one for those who came to dominate a planet and get technology. And they probably have millennia of interaction with their cousin civilizations on their homeworld, where hiding was not seen as either possible or desirable, same as we don't have any hidden empires here on Earth, though of course they might just be very good at hiding, I suppose those Chuds and Morlocks. In the end, it's not that we should assume alien life is friendly and the galaxy is a safe place, but rather that it's very likely they could be inherently hostile or inherently friendly, and the problem is, there's just no reason we shouldn't already know by now which. But in the absence of that knowledge, the right strategy isn't necessarily to hide and cower and sneakily murder off any civilization we can, for my part, I'd rather protect our territory by just openly saying it is ours, rather than hiding on it and murdering anyone who unwittingly entered it. And I would rather we just sent out probes, and if we got reports back things are empty, go and claim them, and if not, say hello to whoever is there. After all, if they have left us alone all this time, it would seem strange to kill us for knocking on their door, especially if they hadn't bothered posting a no trespassing sign of some sort. That's the strategy life on Earth tends to use, mark your territory because doing so does warn others you exist, but the odds of getting into a fight which you might win or lose but will likely be injured by goes down, as your competitors and you are necessarily somewhat risk-averse, even if you lose the element of surprise by doing that. You avoid many more conflicts that have a significant risk of harming you. That's how things work here in the Dark Forest on Earth, and it's much easier to temporarily hide a single predator in a real forest than to hide an entire planet for eons among the bright sea of stars. So today we were talking about the possibility of hostile alien invaders lurking in the shadows unknown waiting to leap out and attack as soon as they find out we exist and where we are. But you don't have to go to another world or wait for aliens to come here to experience that. Just use the internet long enough and someone is going to try to hack you, scam you, or cheat you. This is where our virtual private network can be your first and best line of defense, because you can move your web traffic so it's going through another server which can be in entirely different countries. Maybe it's some hacker targeting you for various forms of phishing, or some agency limiting what you can watch or how much you have to pay to purchase something online based on your country of origin. You don't need to justify why you don't want people snooping on your location or IP address. If you're tired of having your privacy taken away and your data exploited, NordVPN can help you take back control and protect yourself. NordVPN is a fast and easy to use one-click VPN but NordVPN also has tons of alerts and protection features to help protect you from attacks like phishing or ransomware or malvertising. Enjoy extra security features and a great virtual private network that encrypts your data and can send it through any of their 5,400 servers in 59 different countries, to protect your privacy and keep you safe. You can check out their website to learn all the benefits NordVPN offers, just go to nordvpn.com slash isaacarthur to get a 2 year plan plus a bonus gift on top. It's risk free with Nord's 30 day money back guarantee. So today we were talking about the possibility of hostile alien invaders lurking in the shadows unknown waiting to leap out and attack as soon as they find out we exist and where we are. But you don't have to go to another world or wait for aliens to come here to experience that, just use the internet long enough and someone is going to try to hack you, scam you, or cheat you. This is where our virtual private network can be your first and best line of defense, because you can move your web traffic so it's going through another server which can be in entirely different countries. Maybe it's some hacker targeting you for various forms of phishing, or some agency limiting what you can watch or how much you have to pay to purchase something online based on your country of origin. You don't need to justify why you don't want people snooping on your location or IP address. If you're tired of having your privacy taken away and your data exploited, NordVPN can help you take back control and protect yourself. NordVPN is a fast and easy to use one-click VPN but NordVPN also has tons of alerts and protection features to help protect you from attacks like phishing or ransomware or malvertising. Enjoy extra security features and a great virtual private network that encrypts your data and can send it through any of their 5,400 servers in 59 different countries, to protect your privacy and keep you safe. You can check out their website to learn all the benefits NordVPN offers. Just go to nordvpn.com slash Isaac to get a two-year plan plus a bonus gift on top. It's risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee.